This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. And her master's and doctoral degrees in cognitive psychology from Kent State. During her tenure at Hope College, she served as director of cultural diversity courses in the general education curriculum. As director of general education, as chair of the psychology department, and as co-leader of the teaching enhancement workshop program. She also directed two programs at Hope College funded by the Howard Hughes Medical Institute to improve the engagement of research experiences in the classroom. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Lorna Hernandez Jarvis. Can everybody hear me okay? Well, thank you again for being here tonight. What um, I decided to do for this talk is to prepare something about, related to what I'm doing here, which is diversity education, but give you a little bit of an overview of the history of diversity education in the United States, tell you a little bit about where things are currently at, in terms of education or diversity education in higher ed, and then talk a little bit about some models or approaches uh, of how to do this in perhaps better ways or more inclusive ways. So as you all have experienced, we live in a divided and a divisive world in which we deepen our disagreements rather than finding effective ways to collaborate and allow everyone to flourish. Higher education is not immune to this situation. We see it out there in our communities. We see it within our community. Today, more than ever, institutions of higher education have the responsibility to create environments in which academic excellence is inclusive, in which all develop intercultural intelligence and a strong sense of democratic values and civic engagement. As I said, we're going to start with a little history. That's right. Can't see it behind me. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois asserted that the world problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. He really believed that issues of race were going to predominate that 20th century. Throughout his career, he championed the transformative power of a liberal education specifically as being essential to the continuing development of democracy. He also spent a lot of his life work um, in kind of critiquing the notions of racial hierarchies. And he was convinced that colleges and universities have a duty to play a leadership role in redressing inequities by leading change whether it's as teachers, as researchers, activists, public intellectuals, whatever our roles are. Even though that was his vision, it has yet to be realized. 
he thought this was going to be the problem of the 20th century. We're into the 21st century, and it has spilled over. We continue to be dealing with issues of race. Um, a lot of what I'm going to talk about in terms of diversity education, I'm going to kind of focus in on race, but I want to make sure that you understand that this work is much wider than that. When we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, we're talking about a whole array of social identities. Uh, historically, the work of diversity education started with looking as, at race as the primary issue to, to address. Nowadays, we're looking at all kinds of different uh, social identities, whether it is religious identity, uh, sexual um, identity, gender, uh, class, uh, etc. The 2016 presidential election revealed an American society, and I went too far, didn't I? There we go. Um, an American society that is deeply divided across economic and social issues. This divisiveness uh, has become deeply personal, so it's not just in the public arena anymore. It has come to our homes, our families, and you see the famous, you know, we're coming up to Thanksgiving in which people get together for their family gathering, and there's deep divisions about where the country should be, how we should be approaching uh, social and economic uh, issues for sure, and certainly race issues. This divisiveness threatens the very nature of our democracy. Throughout our nation's history, make sure that I get to that one. Yeah, throughout our nation's history, young activists, college students, uh, higher education institutions have played a prominent role in the struggle for racial equity. As a matter of fact, universities were pretty much the backbone of the civil rights movement. But they didn't do it alone. It had to be accompanied by very strong community activists. Whether you're thinking an uh, MLK or uh, Rosa Parks, right? All know about those particular activists in the community in the civil rights movement. But not many people connect all their movements that are part of that era or that time that were also struggling with issues of, of race such as uh, Rebecca Adamson, who was a Cherokee activist, uh, very important for the American Indian Movement. She was uh, crucial in uh, enacting the 1975 Indian Education and Self-Determination Act. Or, of course, Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta. I'm hoping that most of you have heard of Cesar Chavez. Not as many people know about Dolores Huerta, also uh, agricultural workers, uh, both work really, really uh, hard to get Mexican-Americans to register and to vote, and work very diligently uh, to support agricultural workers' rights. So, even historically, we have this connection between what's happening in communities and what's happening in institutions of higher education. More. 
And even though we have the civil rights movement, a lot of progress has been made, institutions have changed policies to try to be more inclusive, to look at issues of equity, and significant progress has been made. However, laws and court rulings have not changed minds and hearts. Laws and courts have not brought racial healing to communities. Nor have they jettisoned the belief in a hierarchy of human value that discriminates based on skin color. As you all know, racism still affects children, families, and communities. Residential segregation has increased, and it must be addressed and reversed to eliminate the school segregation, which also has increased in the last 15, 20 years, rather than diminish. Safety and crime control are of paramount importance in our communities, as well as the epidemic of racialized mass incarceration. So these are just few of the things that are going on currently in our country. So even though we've made some progress, there's clearly a long road ahead of us. Academic institutions are basically creating the next generation of critical thinkers and strategic leaders. And they're doing it by grounding them in an expanding and inclusive narrative about historical and contemporary realities. However, as some researchers point out, there is a slow and reluctant integration of college campuses across the South for sure, but this is truly nationwide. The United States needs transformation, needs to develop a new national narrative that is rooted in the belief in the equal humanity of all Americans. We're really far from that goal. So that's a little bit of the historical background. Where are we now? What's happening in higher education at the national level? Well, the Association of American Colleges and Universities in collaboration with the Kellogg Foundation, uh, about two years ago, uh, made an urgent call to action. And this is actually a little bit before uh, our past election. So they could see some patterns already developing in our nation that were concerning. And the call of action that these uh, organizations made was we need to make explicit the connections between the work of higher education in promoting racial and social justice and the lives of those in surrounding communities and across the country. Again, they're, try, they're saying, you know, in the past, when we really made progress and made a difference is because there was that combination of community actions with the collaboration of universities and uh, institutions of higher learning. And what they're asking people to do is to focus on the equity imperative in higher education. And did I go too far yet? Kind of tricky here. There we go. In the publication that uh, came out, I believe, a year and a half ago or so, 
uh, titled Step Up and Lead for Equity, What Higher Education Can Do to Reverse Our Deepening Divides. These two organizations highlighted the continuing inequities in educational outcomes uh, in the nation. So they presented evidence, first of all, that U.S. students will very soon be majority students of color. We give you some of the statistics that they presented. They projected that by 2060, and this is using the census data, by 2060, 32% of the elementary and secondary school enrollment will be white students. 39% will be Hispanic, 15% Asian, and 15% Black. So you put all of those underrepresented groups together, that's 69% of the stu students are all in elementary and secondary education. There's still deep e uh, economy gaps that persists for Latinos and African Americans. Again, some basic statistics here. Among adults born into deep poverty, meaning the lowest fifth uh, percent of household income, only 10% of those who earn a four-year degree remain in the bottom fifth of household incomes. So if you're in that lower range in terms of poverty, but you do get a higher education, you jump to the middle ranges, sometimes even higher. Without that higher education, you stay in that bottom fifth. So completing college clearly improves economic mobility. Lots of evidence that this is the case. We still know that too few low-income students complete college. So while post-secondary institutions are becoming more diverse, the degree attainment gap for low-income students is actually getting wider. We also know that too few students of color complete college. It still is the case that the completion rate for uh, college is the highest, actually the highest is for Asians, then for whites, then uh, African-Americans and Latinos. We still encounter lots of inequities in terms of college readiness. And it has to do again with the segregated schools again uh, from K through 12. They come from schools that don't have the resources to prepare them and get them ready for college uh, experience or college education. And then once the students get here, there's still inequities in the kinds of opportunities that are offered to them. So for example, students of color we know are underrepresented in many of what are called high impact practices, which are things like getting involved in research or uh, having internships, studying abroad, those kinds of things that we know are very, very critical uh, and important for high levels of uh, success in education and in jobs. 
and students of color are less likely to take advantage of those opportunities in college. Okay, so that's kind of where we are. Uh, again, the Association of American Colleges and Universities, in those initiatives that they're kind of trying to start in the last two years or so, their focus is on addressing these equity gaps through the following objectives. They want to increase access to uh, participation in high-impact practices, increase completion, retention, and graduation rates of low-income students, first-generation students, adult learners, and minority students. Increase the achievement of learning outcomes for underserved students using direct assessment measures, and they have developed some of those measures themselves. And increase students' awareness and understanding of the value of guided learning pathways. So helping them connect the kinds of courses that they take in ways that are, that are meaningful through their college experience. How do we do those things, right? These are all kind of objectives and goals, and that's great. We know that that's where we need to go, but how do we do this? Well, this is what they're suggesting we do. Institutions are encouraged to address the following questions. So how can we build capacity for educators to ask and respond to questions about equity that can lead to campus change? So for our own institution, what are we doing for the faculty members so that they can create the classroom situation, make it much more equitable, and allow opportunities for everybody to take advantages of these high-impact practices? How can we move the dialogue about student learning and success from a deficit-minded, right? I just told you all the gaps and all the problems. How can we move the conversation from focusing on the deficits to looking at the assets, the strengths that those students bring, and how do we highlight those and make that education even better for them? How do we motivate faculty and staff to address equity as intrinsic to higher education mission? And I would even add to that being at a faith-based institution. What is our theological mandate to do this for all of us? And then the last question they pose is, what does it mean to be an equity-minded practitioner? So you're, if you are a teacher or a staff member, what does it mean to be equity-minded? What does it mean to have an equity-minded pedagogy? So they're encouraging institutions to have these discussions and look at clarity in language and in goals, in intentionality and accountability. We need to ask ourselves, how are equity and excellence defined at our institution? How does our campus define and model inclusion? Who is currently excluded from achieving excellence? How do we engage cultural differences through civil discourse? How do we strengthen our democracy while respecting our diversity? Two quotes 
here that might give some answers to those questions. Making excellence inclusive is an active process through which colleges and universities achieve excellence in learning, teaching, student development, institutional functioning, and engagement in local and global communities. The action of making excellence inclusive requires that we, first of all, uncover inequities in student success. So who is succeeding, who is not, and why? Identify the effective educational practices. What really works to make sure that every student succeeds? And embed such practices systematically for sustained and institutional change. Couple quick notes. To continue to grow our democracy, inequities absolutely must be addressed. A focus on diversity, education, and inclusion is critical in addressing the inequities. You start by addressing the inequities, and then what is it? How are we informing all of the students, whether they're minority or white students, on the importance of learning to work together, on the, uh, the impact of culture on each of us, and, and the kinds of values and systems and beliefs that we develop? So a focus on that diverse education, which means incorporating uh, diverse voices in the curriculum and inclusive pedagogy. I know that at Whitworth you have the requirement of the domestic uh, or national diversity and then another requirement for international. And that's fantastic and that is wonderful. The only problem is that sometimes you end up with yeah, those are the two courses where you get your cultural diversity. And we miss the opportunity to, what are the contributions? What are, maybe not just the contributions, but the struggles. For example, minorities in addressing issues of chemistry. Right? There's issues of chemistry that impact, uh, for example, physical environment. And that is differential in terms of different communities. So are we making those connections? That's what real diversity education is understanding the complexity and the connections of all of these uh, factors. Also, are we using an inclusive pedagogy? Is every student feel comfortable to learn and flourish in the classrooms that we have, or are we using ways of teaching that are predominant or are better suited for our majority students? We need to be asking those questions. We must find ways to engage with difference in more intelligent and nuanced ways and train our minds to entertain more com complex views of the world. Again, what does it mean to be equity-minded? It is a schema that provides an alternative framework for understanding the causes of equity gaps in outcomes and the action needed to close them. So again, what do we need to do to improve the situation? Focus on student outcomes and the disparities. Recognize that individual students are not responsible for unequal outcomes. Often when a student or a group of students is not doing very well, we go back, well, you know, they were deficient, they weren't as well prepared, and it's the fault of the student. Instead of looking at systemically 
organizationally, what are we doing that is um, creating those unequal outcomes? We need to respect for aspirations and struggles of all students. Being equity-minded also means that you have a belief in fairness when allocating resources and in the recognition of need to deconstruct the structures, the policies, the norms and values that assume are race neutral when they are not. Being equity-minded also encompasses that we all become race conscious. And here I will add, I said I was kind of going to concentrate it on race, but really that we all become mindful of social identities. Because everything that I've been saying in terms of race would apply, whether you're talking about um, faith minorities or we're talking about uh, sexual identity or about gender. Okay? So it applies broadly, not specific or unique uh, to race. Being equity-minded has to be institutionally focused. So what are we doing here? Often it's a lot easier to be talking about, oh yeah, this is happening nationwide or in, or in other places, and we don't look towards us inside. So it has to be institutionally focused and not just about specific people, but what are we doing as an organization that perpetrates these inequities, or what can we do to begin to change them? So we need to be systemically aware and, of course, action-oriented. Isn't that enough? And I can't tell you how many times I have heard from different groups, I'm tired of talking about this. When are we going to do something to really begin to change things? Right? Being equity-minded means that, that you are really have the attitude that you're in action, really want things to change. So practitioners should become more equity-minded and em embed equity-mindedness in practices and policies across the institution. I kind of mentioned some of these things already. If we take the first one, this idea that we all need to be more race conscious, what does that mean? That we need to notice racial inequities in educational outcomes and experiences. We start with the acknowledgement and the awareness. Then we need to have open discussions of the role that race and racism plays in perpetrating educational inequities. Then, it requires that we acknowledge that race and class are different. We often try to uh, ignore race by saying, well, it's really all about class. And the truth is that the two are different and have different impacts. And finally, eliminating race-based inequities will require a different approach from class-based inequities. We need to address both, don't get me wrong, but they're different. 
In terms of reflecting an awareness of and responsiveness to the systemic nature of racial and ethnic inequities, what do we need to do to understand again those structural inequalities? Our nation's schools, as I mentioned before, are actually more segregated than before Brown versus Board decision now. Discrimination in employment, lending, voting, contribute to racial inequalities. So what are we doing about those things too? So when we talk about diversity education, it's not just what happens in your classroom, but what's really out there in the, those communities. And that's why it's so important to build those collaborations with communities. Systemic racial and ethnic inequities were created over time through policy and entrenched racism. So acknowledging that and beginning to uh, try to dismantle those structures, very important. Okay, view inequities as problems of practice and feel a personal and institutional responsibility to address them. Emphasize institutional responsibility to create equity and direct practitioners to focus on what they can do to close those gaps. And instead of focusing on the idea of fixing the students that are deficient, right, we're trying to move away from that model, we should reassess what practices we are putting in place and consider how to remediate or change those institutional goals. And we need to focus on the circumstances that lead to the problems rather than only on weaknesses of students. Rely um, on evidence to guide their practice. There's lots of research, lots of information that we have now. We need to be relying on that evidence to help us decide how do we move forward, what changes are needed, okay? Rather than just do it on a case-by-case case situation, use the data that is out there. We teach you at institutions of higher ed the importance of research. Then we need to be modeling that in terms of the changes in our own institutions. And then, like I said, it needs to be action-oriented. So take action to eliminate educational inequities, whether it's, again, as a practitioner, as a faculty member, as a staff member, you need to take action to make some changes. Raise awareness of racial inequities, if that's what you can do. Or build understanding of the connection between in, uh, inequitable outcomes and what's happening structurally in the institution that leads to those outcomes. And that action should be based on the data, again. Take action based on what the data is telling you. Okay. So a long, hopefully not too long, history of where we've been in diverse education, what's happening now, and what are, what's the call for us in the next 10 years or so. What I wanna do now is share is kind of shift a little bit and tell you about um, one of the ways that I've been working on and finding very useful in addressing some of these issues of inequities, but more specifically in addressing uh, the conflicts in terms of race and racism and social identities that our nation is really facing. And that is that often we disagree with somebody and instead of trying to work to understand each other's positions, 
we move away from each other. So I've been working really hard on uh, sharing my knowledge and my enthusiasm uh, for something known as intergroup dialogue. And what intergroup dialogue is, is a process for exploring identity and social justice and communications across differences and within communities. So IGD, what it does, it externalizes the internalized by breaking silences created by power, voice, oppression, privilege, etc. So it's a process that helps us all engage and examine our privilege, examine systems of oppression, and be able to talk about them without uh, getting on each other's nerves or shutting down. So what is this process or what's the process of intergroup dialogue? First of all, it's a process that is sustained, structure, and focus. You cannot get into real conversations by coming in one time for an hour and trying to address issues of racism. Not much is going to happen. You're probably going to walk out of that room still feeling and believing the same things you did before. Okay. For real change in terms of understanding to happen, you need to agree to engage in multiple conversations. And those conversations need to be structured and focus on a particular social identity until you really go in-depth and understand it. Um, you need to have guidelines that will help you have some kind of group cohesion or agreement on how you're going to talk about these things. And you're going to need some communication skills. You're going to need to understand issues of identity, know something about history and social relations. And I hope you begin to see why, just by the list that I'm giving you here, why I'm excited about this. Because this is what liberal arts education is about. It's about understanding history. It's about understanding uh, social relations, social identities, developing skills to do things better. So at the, at the heart of this model is really a liberal arts education. The purpose of intergroup dialogue is understanding. It's not to reach agreement or to persuade somebody else of your point of view. It's about trying to understand the different perspectives. And what happens is, if that's your primary goal, once you begin to understand somebody else's perspective, then you're able to begin to challenge beliefs, disagreements, and go more in depth and begin to problem solve together and get uh, to a better place, uh, perhaps not agreement, but compromises, better solutions for everybody. Um, another thing that happens in, and I keep going too quick, sorry about that. Another thing that happens, of course, is the conflicts and feelings are externalized. The intergroup dialogue goes through five stages. All there, there we go. And what we do when we're uh, engaging people in intergroup dialogue is we walk them through all five stages. And you can do it in an entire semester or you can do it in three days, and I've done it both ways. Sometimes you can even do it if you do a two-hour session. It's just not as in fully or as intense, but you get the idea. But it's really important that you understand all five of these stages. 
So the first stage is just setting the environment for dialogue. And that includes both the physical environment as well as the um, psychological environment. Then you develop some communication skills. Then you explore identities. You, build al uh, you get into the conflict. You build allies. And hopefully, you walk out there with more understanding. In terms of um, setting the environment, what we do is we talk about the difference between debate okay, and dialogue. In dialogue, you're really not talking about winning like you do in debate. Um, you recognize that in dialogue, you need to, space for experiences and for emotions. And you develop some guidelines for safe dialogue. And you do some exercises to build trust. If you're going to be vulnerable, if you're going to try to understand, you need to build trust in that environment. Um, one of the key things about this model is that we're trying to, do, to understand and connect with another person, and that that's more important than trying to solve the problem, is the connection between the people. We also, as I mentioned, it's a structure-focused process, and that we're dealing with complexity. We're not going to simplify the problem. We're going to accept the complexity of the issues. There we go. So we take winning off the table, like I said. Not a debate, right? And you have to be very clear from the beginning that that's the case. And we kind of try to find the third path. Not your way, not my way, but let's see if we can find a third way to address this issue. And again, the emotions, the experiential, that's all part of this, this model. One of the things we do is try to figure out guidelines for discussion, and that's really, really important. These are just some examples. You know, maintain confidentiality, embrace vulnerability, respect dignity, all those kinds of things that are very important. The last point I think is perhaps uh, very, very critical. To practice trustworthiness. What that means is that you have to trust your story will be believed and trust others by believing their stories. So when you engage in dialogue, don't start by like, oh, you know, well, I, how could that happen? I just don't think that's even possible. If you start doubting the stories, you're going to have problems. Building trust, okay? Again, to share a story is to trust that others will listen and believe. Okay? What happens if our story is not believed? How do we feel when we ourselves are not heard or not seen? What happens when you don't see yourself in someone else's story? So listening to a story is an act of love and the window to the soul of another. So really, really important to build trust so that you can listen to somebody else's story. Right? So let the issues be the issue.
In terms of communication skills, we need to learn how to speak concisely, powerfully, clearly. A quick story, and that's why this Baal Shem Tov, who was the founder of the Hasidic Judaism, um, is a kind of a quick funny story, or not funny, but interesting story. He believed that every person was born with a finite number of words. So you were born with, you know, however many words. The problem is that you didn't know how many words you were born with. And the minute or the moment you said your last word, you die. Okay. So everybody goes around being very careful of which words you use, right? Because you don't know if that's going to be your last word. Is that the word you want to go out on? And you don't know when that will be. So really important, speak to specifics, speak from your own experience. So we talk about those kinds of uh, skills in terms of speaking, learning how to do that. And it is not easy to learn how to do that. We also need to learn how to ask questions. And questions are really important because it's one of those tools that really help us know how to get deeper into understanding somebody else's story. A lot of the times we ask questions to kind of challenge, or we kind of ask questions, but it's not a real question. We're actually making a statement against something that we just heard. No. In dialogue, what we're trying to do is develop questions that really help you understand the other person. What are good, essential questions about what you just heard that will help you be more empathic with that person? One of the ways, of course, is ask single questions. That's the other thing, right? Somebody asks questions, and they're actually asking two or three in the one question. Go simple, one question. Make open-ended questions. Somebody asked me earlier today, what, what is an open-ended question? You know, just a question that is not a fact or a yes-no kind of question, in which they have to give you a deeper, more extensive explanation. Listening is the other skill here. So speaking, asking questions, listening. We need to do this mindfully and with this idea of the double listening in dialogue, listening with both your heart and your head. With perspective taking and with multipartiality, meaning that you're trying to listen to all sides and all possibilities rather than just one way. And listening also means attending to verbals and nonverbals. Listen to the nonverbals. See what the body of the people that you're involved in is telling you. And as well as what is said and not said. Validation, another skill we need to do in terms of communications. How do we validate? How do we tell the person, you know, I see you, I hear your story, I know who you are, but I still disagree with the statement that you made. So you can validate the person and still disagree with them. Validate means to confirm, verify, authenticate, okay? And we actually live in a society of uh, very clearly of external validation. And the methods of validation actually, you know, nonverbal, uh, Questions, listening, 
feelings are ways of validating people. So we need to develop all of these skills. Also, learn how to describe your emotions and your feelings. And that's different than saying, letting your emotions fly out. Right? When you're involved in difficult conversations, really important to develop vocabulary so that we know how to describe what we're feeling without letting those feelings take over and then make us so angry that we can't listen or so upset that we can't speak anymore. So this little wheel of emotions kind of helps to, to learn how to describe things. So when you're feeling sad, well, are you sad, like depressed or guilty or ashamed? All of those are connected to sadness. So learning how to differentiate those emotions and how to describe them, very important to address issues of uh, conflict. Okay. And then you move to social identities. Identities are constituted by narratives, damaged by narratives, and they can be repaired through narratives. So really, really important to begin to understand what the person's story is and how they uh, form their social identities. Also to really look at assumptions. What assumptions am I making about those that I'm engaged with? What assumptions do I think they're making about me and can, can I clarify those so that they know that those assumptions were either correct or not? Dialogue makes those assumptions visible and allows you to engage in them. Okay. Another thing that you need to do when you start exploring social identities is explore this idea of microaggressions. I don't know if you, any of you have heard this term. Um, basically, microaggressions are brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, or environmental indignities that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative slights and insults. Why are these a problem? Because they're tied to social identities. You know, the idea that, oh, did you get a scholarship because of affirmative action? Well, why is that a problem? Because it implies that the only reason why you came to college is because there was this policy, not because you're capable. And you don't know that. Right? We're making assumptions there. So microaggressions may be human or environmental, like I said. They can involve microsaults or microinsults, microinvalidations. There's many subcategories, different types of uh, these microaggressions. The problem with these microaggressions is that they're cumulative. When, if you are a person that says something that can be offensive, in your view, well, I don't, it, it was one thing, you know, they, What's the big deal? It was just one time, one thing that I said. But for the target, if you're a minority and you're suffering for those microaggressions, you get three or four or five, sometimes more, a day. So there's a pattern. And then you begin to see what people react the way they do to these things. Okay. As you're exploring social identities, you also need to address issues of oppression. A system that maintains advantage and disadvantage based on stereotypical social group memberships. And there's different dimensions of oppression. It can be conscious or unconscious oppression. 
It could be individual, institutional, or social, cultural. And the oppression can be in terms of just an attitude or an actual behavior, an actual action. And understanding how these different factors interact with each other and then impact people's social identities impacts how well you can disagree or communicate with somebody different from you. Once you've done all these things, develop those communication skills, explore social identities, have a basic understanding of these, these concepts, now you're ready to actually get into strong disagreements with people and do it in civil ways because you have the skills to be able to engage and truly begin to understand each other. So in that fourth stage of the cycle, you learn to engage conflict. You recognize your individual privilege that in some of your social identities you're going to be privileged and some of them you're not. And you recognize your role in perpetrating situations. And then you really keep going at it and maintain dialogue and in, even though you disagree, but you're trying to understand each other. So you only go to those once you develop all of those skills. Um, more often than that, and I think you've experienced that, and I've mentioned this to different faculty members too, and I've taught for 24 years or so, that I find an interesting issue and I would say, I really want my students to address this and to really talk about this. So I get my students in class and I say, well, here's a question or here's an idea. Let's talk about it. And all of a sudden, you know, things start blowing up because people get really upset and they're not really listening to each other. And I'm like, okay, what happened? Right? Well, what happened is that I didn't help my students have the skills or know how to engage these issues. How do we communicate? What social identities are being threatened? Are we even aware what social identities each of us have and which ones are important for that particular context? So really important to have the tools on how to do this. And again, looking at privilege, privileges are taken for granted advantage that makes it easier for some people to engage and succeed in organizations. You know, and again, privilege is something that immediately people start feeling like, oh, it's about white feeling guilty or we're gonna be blamed. No, as a matter of fact, as a Latina, there are some things and in some ways in which I am privileged. For example, I am privileged in terms of class. Okay. I am uh, privileged in terms of my status in education. Um, I have a PhD and there's a very, very small part of the world population that have that kind of degree and that kind of knowledge, right? But as a Latina and as an immigrant, I've been oppressed. So. In the same person, you can have both. You can have privilege and you can have oppression. And understanding those dynamics really, really important for difficult conversations. There's different ways to make privilege visible. You know, again, using dialogue. Listen to the stories and then the privilege comes out, right? Or um, don't make assumptions about identity. Uh, often people make assumptions about me being a Latina. They assume that I'm... Was it uh, that I'm an immigrant, that probably from low economic class, you know, and when you hear my story, it's very different than those assumptions and those expectations. 
Uh, recognize microaggressions, be present for others' feelings, lean into conflict. So there's lots of skills that you can develop and things to be aware of in terms of addressing uh, privilege. Validate others, acknowledge privilege. Okay, now we move to the last stage of this cycle. Now I've got to move quickly there. And that is once you've gotten into conflict, you try to understand people's stories, as we think about everything I told you at the beginning of the talk in terms of inequities that are happening in, in the education system, we need to start building alliances with each other and with people in the community to begin to make those changes in terms of uh, inequities that happen in higher education. So in that stage, we talk about what are the characteristics of an ally, what are good practices to become an ally, because people immediately think that, well, I just want to help, and if I help, I'm being an ally. But that's not always true. Sometimes when we think we're helping, what we're actually doing is imposing our approach or our beliefs. That's not a good ally. So understanding those differences, again, and then building communities to make a difference. So here are some of the um, characteristics of an ally. It's part of their own identity. They listen and respect others, work to change privilege into rights for e that everybody will enjoy, and actively works for justice. Uh, somebody also who recognizes unlearning oppressive beliefs and stands against injustice. So lots of specific characteristics. So learning what a, a, an ally is and what will be a good ally. So to end, so we've kind of walked you very quickly through all five stages of intergroup dialogue. It's not an easy process, but I have experienced it now for seven years, and when you really invest in it, it the transformation that occurs in not just in people, but in the quality of the relationships and the conversations that we can have. It's, it's just amazing. So we need to seek equity, and we can do it through change in policies, practices, and diversity education. And we can use intergroup dialogue as a process to lean into conflict and address our differences. Once we get to the conflict, we can begin to get solutions for those inequities. And that's the logic. So I'll stop there.